Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon and Jacob McDonough. How are you both doing today? Doing well. Good. Jeff, both of you guys are doing great. Glad to hear it. We hope the listeners are doing great as well. This is the first time you're tuning in with us. Be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff. Uh, follow us on Twitter at, at focusedcompound. And of course, uh, make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching the podcast here today. Uh, Jacob McDonough, who runs McDonough Investments, the author of Capital Allocation. Uh, if you are a frequent listener of the podcast, you know him. Uh, be sure to check out all of his content on the internet. You could follow him on Twitter. And you could also check out his podcast, the 10K podcast on Spotify and iTunes and wherever else you listen to podcasts. I'm going to put all that information down below in the description. So Jacob, we had you on the podcast to talk about Geico. And you had told us that you were going to go over General Motors. We said, you know, we'd welcome you back on the podcast when you upload uh, or when you finish your series on General Motors. Uh, so here we are today. You've uploaded three podcasts on um, uh, General Motors and you went over the annual reports from 1918, 1920, and 1932. So we're going to talk about it here today. Um, before we jump into that, I'm just curious, um, you know, what prompted you to start with these years? I would say these were some major inflection points in, uh, you know, the history of the company, but what made you decide to start uh, with these three years? Yeah, thanks for having me back. I had a lot of fun talking about Geico with you guys uh, last last episode. It's um, um, I do the podcast, my own podcast, just by myself, so it's nice joining with other people to have more of a conversation about it. And I always love hearing what you guys have to say on these businesses and the time period. So I'd love to come back anytime uh, I do a business that sounds interesting to you guys. Happy to talk. Um, but yeah, this past year at the Berkshire Annual Meeting, Warren Buffett talked about, um, he just casually mentioned, oh, recently I was reading the 1932 annual report of General Motors, and he said it was one of the best he's read. So uh, he's read his fair share of annual reports. Um, he seems to do that every now and then, just be like, oh, yeah, by the way, I was reading 19, early 1900 report of Coke or GM or, or whatever. So he, I assume he's already read those in the past. Maybe he revisits from time to time. But um but yeah, so that, that sparked my interest. And then so I started with the oldest one I could find, 1918. And then um, I read from there all the way through to 1932 and just decided to make three episodes on what seemed to be, like you said, the, the inflection points. And such an interesting time period because the car industry was so new, um, so much growth. And then by 1932, the Great Depression, which I've always wanted to study more um, because, um, you know, it was a tough time and it, it's legendary how tough it was, but I've always wondered really how companies fared and GM did pretty well during that period, which we'll get to, but um, I want to study more and more companies and, and see um, how that, that era affected them anyway, but that's how I got, got to this report. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just curious, Jeff, do you think that Buffett, like somebody just happens to say, hey, Warren, you need to check out the 1932 annual report of General Motors? Why do you think he just happened to be casually reading that annual report, if you had to guess? Uh, I have no idea. Jacob, do you have any idea? Do you think maybe just generally interested in investing in business history? And he's just yeah. like, oh, yeah, I should, you know, because I, I do remember him saying that and it was just kind of off the cuff. And it was like, really? Like, yeah. yeah, 1932 General Motors. Very interesting. Yeah. Just my speculation is just for pure enjoyment. He uh, he likes, I think for fun, he likes going back, studying business, reading about those businesses back in the day, um, especially the ones that have lasted for so long. Um, I know they, I think they own some GM. I don't know if it's his position. It might be one of his investment managers, but if it's a stock he owns or a business he owns, I'm sure he'd love going back in the history too. Mm-hmm. So when you are looking for original sources for something like this, right? So I found on the internet myself, uh, you know, some years of annual reports of General Motors, but I did have to email you and ask for 1918. Uh, is that just, you know, researching around, speaking to people, talking to perhaps libraries or archives. I'm just curious because I imagine you had to do that as well when you were doing research for your book, Capital Allocation. Yeah, it is more difficult than you would think to find some of these reports, which to me maybe seems like there could be a service or or me or someone else could help people out by actually getting these reports more accessible. But in this specific case, I know for my book, there was a lot of libraries I went to and a lot of hunting. But for this case, I searched on Twitter. I saw someone kind of tweeted a link many, like five years ago about 1932 annual report for GM. The link didn't work anymore, but using like the Wayback machine or, or whatever, you were able to find kind of like the original link. Um, that's where I got that one. And, um, and through that kind of same source, there was some other years they had as well. Um, and then for some reason, I think 1918 I already had on, on hand and I can't even remember how I got it. I think I had a habit at one point when I would find some of these old ones, just like download it as a PDF just to make sure that, you know, you don't lose it if the website is taken down, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's jump into it. So I guess to set the stage, I mean, and this is a, probably a good question for Jeff. Jeff, why do you think uh, the automobile industry, uh, especially in the, these years, were uh, more concentrated in uh, the Michigan area. I mean, Henry Ford, I believe, was a native there. But is there anything geographically or strategically you think that led uh, this sort of innovation or high technology to be concentrated in this part of the country, if you had to guess? Uh, I don't have a guess about that. Um, I know from the book, uh, or um, the Alfred Sloan book, uh, you know, he talks a little bit about like working for a company that was supplying to these different um uh, car makers early on and it was like when we talked about the airplane parts um you know you would get into a production with a car and most of these they never made many of and then a few really took off and so their suppliers moved in to have offices near them and you know to supply them like i think his company was supplying both ford and gm in large number so i think a lot of them started to that's where you had your supplies and everything there mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And I imagine something probably like close proximity to the Great Lakes to, uh, um, uh, you know, get to like maybe Ohio or Pennsylvania for steel and other things like that. But yeah, I was just uh, curious if uh, you had uh, any sort of uh, thoughts 
on that. But yeah, so let's uh, jump into it. So the year is 1918, which is the first podcast that you recorded, the first annual report you went over on General Motors. Uh, Ford's Model T came out in 1909, um, uh, which was a model that was known for its durability and its low cost. It essentially was made on an assembly line. Um, uh, so yeah, let's uh, talk about uh, GM uh, 1918 and what your big uh, you know takeaways were from this year, Jacob. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. So, um, and maybe a little introduction to it. 1918, it was a very new industry still. Um, the modern car was invented in the late 1800s, but even in the early 1900s, there was still very low production. I believe in year 1900, there was only 4,000 uh, cars produced. And uh, Ford Motor Company was formed in 1903. And like you said, the Model T came out in 1908 or 1909. Um, GM was formed in 1908. So by 1918, this was still pretty new, um, new industry. Um, and, um, and GM, Billy Durant was the founder of GM. And he's a very interesting entrepreneur. And so basically he was in the uh, carriage business for like horse carriages. And, um, and he was based in Flint too. So that could be one small reason. Um, there was some large Flint wagon companies and, and then you have suppliers to them too. So I don't know if that played a role in any, any of the switch to the automobile. There was already some companies kind of working on that there. And then also it's interesting just how industries form where you get some entrepreneurs that stir up some excitement and some people move there or some people in the area kind of hear about it and get interested and do experiments on their own and all that kind of stuff. So it, it is pretty interesting, but, um, yeah, Billy Durant eventually though took control of Buick. Uh, David Buick started the company and it changed hands a few times and eventually Billy Durant, uh, got control of it and he merged it with Oldsmobile to form GM in 1908. And so that was kind of the strategy that Billy Durant followed was, um, issuing stock to merge a bunch of companies. And they did a ton of acquisitions from companies we would still know today, like Buick, Oldsmobile, Cadillac, Chevrolet, but also parts makers that, um, you know, that drivers would never would have seen. And even lamp companies like street lamp companies. And as you get later towards the Great Depression, um, airplane companies and radio companies, and they, they were heavy on acquisitions where Ford was more focused on one model, Henry Ford wanted to control the company, very little to no acquisitions, um, stuff like that. So that's maybe a little background on uh, leading up to this annual report. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Ford, they had, what, something like 60% market share during this time? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So I'd be curious to get your guys' take here. But when I study this, Ford's position just seems so dominant. It feels weird saying that now, seeing how competitive and tough the industry is today. And I mean, it... It was it was tough from day one. I mean, demand was high from consumers. They loved cars, but supply was huge too, which is a dynamic you guys have talked about plenty on your podcast. But um, thousands of companies were started and most of them failed. Uh, so you had that aspect. But the ones that survived, I mean, um, <clears throat> they uh, had some better returns on capital in the early days in most years um, than uh, you would see today too. But um, Ford, their, their, uh, Ford and GM had very different philosophies in the early days. Ford was focused by the time they had the model T out Ford focused on that one model of car. And by 1921, they had 60% market share six zero on one model. So that'd be like today, not just 
Ford Motor Company having 60% market share, but like the Ford Mustang or the Ford Explorer having 60% of all cars in existence, um, which is which is huge. So their focus though, help them like kind of perfect the one car, get it at a lower cost, get scale, which helped them, you know, economies of scale and get it at a lower and lower cost. And it was still a new industry. So um, for people to get used to that car, it helped focusing and then mechanics, you know, today, back then versus today mechanics knew less about fixing up cars and so the model t didn't change much year over year um and they kept producing it for i think 19 years so it didn't change a whole lot through that whole period so for mechanics to get used to that it helped lower the cost to to uh drivers and um yeah they ford was very focused on the mission of providing a car for the masses that was at the lowest cost possible which meant even not giving drivers the option of colors or things like a self-starter versus like a hand crank starter um, whatever was cheaper that's what Ford was going to put in the Model T he didn't care what drivers wanted really he was going to make the lowest cost car um, GM more was diverse in terms of a lot of different models of cars at different price levels um, different options for drivers diverse diversification in terms of like how the engineering could change over the years because early in the industry it's you know tough to know exactly how the product's going to develop over time and stuff like that so very different philosophies um early on but ford's focus is what helped it um achieve such a dominant position right away instead of spreading itself too thin Mm -hmm. yeah you talk about like the difference of philosophies um you know and the lack of model diversity with Ford. I mean, have a, I have a quote right here. Henry Ford famously said, any customer can have a car painted any color that he wants so long as it is black, right? So they really only made black Fords. Um, and then to your point about like different models and different colors, GM's philosophy, um, uh, um, Sloan, he had said, a car for every purse and purpose is what he said. And what he meant by that is, um, you know, just multiple different iterations, multiple different, um, you know, prices. So basically everybody can have uh, a GM car, um, which, you know, you could explain um, they're able to or you could say that probably was able uh, allow them to attract a bunch of different customers to, uh, you know, to their brand as opposed to just like the standard Model T uh, car from Ford. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm curious, just even present day, when you're looking at a stock, do you do you think anything different of these two philosophies in terms of like focus versus diversification versus variety? Or does it really depend on the situation case by case basis? I'm just curious if either of those two things mean anything to you. I mean, I think I'd be concerned if the only advantage is a low price. Uh, it's a pretty simple advantage, you know, as opposed to like GM's advantage was pretty complex and so there's just a possibility that it could fall apart um it it did fall apart with lack of scale right so you have to keep your scale up and then doing that uh, is the only way to keep your price down um you also had rapid growth in the industry which leads to a lot more people having experience having cars and i think the sloan talked a lot about the used car thing being a problem for Ford that they didn't really understand that people would buy used cars if they wanted a cheap car instead of buying a new car. And what they wanted in a new car would be variety and all that. But I mean, I've talked a little bit about it with like Costco or something. It does worry me. You have to stick to that advantage. Uh, 
and there's just so many complexities in that business that I I, I would be worried about a moat like that being able to last. You know, it it may last only for as long as there's someone in place to keep it um, that way, and not so much when people have a lot of different choices. I don't know how many people would pick something on price alone. Jeff, does this kind of remind you in a in a way about like BlackBerry and uh, you know then the iPhone coming out and killing BlackBerry, right? And how like BlackBerry was so uh, so much sticking to their guns and what they're doing, they had just all the market share basically, and then the iPhone comes out and they didn't iterate; they kind of continued on with it, and it was like the boiling frog syndrome. They you know eventually died. Yeah, and BlackBerry thought that they took all their share from Nokia, which was dominant before them, and no one thought that anyone could beat Nokia, and then no one thought anyone could beat BlackBerry, you know, and now you have Apple. I mean, the the things that's hard to realize, and you've done a lot of reading of this, uh, Jacob, um, is just like some of the things they acquired that turned out to be worth nothing. Sometimes that's because that sort of didn't become the prototypical way of how cars were made. But it's at the time, you wouldn't have known that. Um, you know, it wasn't all just, we didn't know exactly what the dominant design would be. Right. And I think that's some of what you see with like Blackberry, like you were talking about, Andrew is, um, you, you know, you don't know what will be the design that becomes dominant after that point. And then later on, uh, cars are a lot more like each other, but earlier on, there's a lot more experimentation. That's true. And GM was not afraid to strike out and they were, they're trying different things. And, and even in the early days and, and you brought up the used car market, which is interesting. And Ford really kind of created the used car market. They didn't realize it, but the Model T not changing for so long, um, you know, is what kind of pushed the used car market so much to be coming to an existence because, you know, you had so much volume of one model of car. Eventually, once people were ready to buy the next car, um, you know, they, they wanted something different. But so Ford kind of created their downfall in one one small aspect in terms of they helped create the used car market, but didn't realize the fact that that was kind of being created. So as you can see on the screen right now for people watching on YouTube, one thing I just wanted to give context to is net profits after deducting all expenses, um, $35.5 million. Uh, if you inflation adjust that today, that's a seven hundred seven million dollar company so i mean that's that's still a pretty big dang business for an industry that was still basically in its infancy i mean that's you know a lot of that's that's a lot of volume going through there a lot of profits yeah and and i guess gm very quickly did merge a lot of the successful companies like i said buick and oldsmobile were very popular cars in the early days and then uh, cadillac had a very popular high-end model very the more expensive car people could buy and then um by 19, actually in this report, which we'll get to in a minute, they acquire Chevrolet in this year. Uh, so Billy Durant founded the company, but he got pushed out, um, uh, took on a lot of debt, and his position got diluted a lot through all these acquisitions. So eventually he didn't really have control of the company and he got pushed out. He helped start Chevrolet uh, with the race car driver, Lewis Chevrolet, um, because at the time there was no car, at least to my knowledge, no successful car that uh, was going against the Model T at the low end. And so in some certain years, Ford couldn't even make enough cars to satisfy the demand for low end cars. And so Chevrolet, they formed to help compete in the low end. Um, Ford still completely dominated Chevrolet early on, but Chevrolet was still able to gain a little bit of market share just because capacity was needed. And uh, so, so Chevrolet is a key piece to the General Motors story. And Billy Durant started this, they acquired it in this report we're gonna talk about here. And um, 
that's how Billy Durant took control of GM again the second time. How do you think this acquisition affected their market position? Yeah. I mean, pretty uh, favorably or? Yeah, very, it, it was a key. Chevrolet was kind of the key piece of how they're able to take over Ford eventually. And um, it's interesting, DuPont, uh, the DuPont company acquired close to 30% of, of stock of GM, uh, which I really didn't know that story until studying this. But um, they mentioned how they were able to buy GM in the market at below uh, an asset basis. I think they mean below book value. But yet they were issuing stock to make these acquisitions above book value, you know, paying goodwill and stuff. So that's kind of how Billy Durant was able to get control of the company again. Um, using cheap stock to make acquisitions uh, usually doesn't work out great for existing shareholders, but it helped new shareholders like Billy Durant coming back in, um, kind of take control um, is one thing. But yeah, Chevrolet, kind of their strategy of how they able, um, in the book that... Um, you mentioned Alfred Sloan, My Years with General Motors. That was one I read when, when studying this time period. He talks about when Chevrolet started, he said um, something about uh, no amount of capital short of the U.S. Treasury um, would be enough to compete with Ford um, in terms of volume, in terms of like their low-cost position. And so Chevrolet, what they did was try to offer like a little bit more options to drivers and take, but charge a little more. Uh, so basically they tried to go in between the low end and the medium end and find a little niche in between. And that's kind of how Chevrolet found their place. Is there anything else that stood out to you about 1918 yeah. for the company? One, one the interesting thing from maybe the DuPont angle, um, in, in Alfred Sloan's book, he talks about, or he, he shows some writings from the the DuPont people and why they made the acquisition. So that's kind of interesting. Um, one thing they mentioned was they were able to buy it on a better than asset basis. Two, the DuPont company had been around a long time. I'm pretty sure back to the early 1800s. And so they were a much more mature company. GM is new in a new industry. And so they thought they could take control, maybe institute better controls, maybe make it more professional and stuff. But um, they also secured for their business the to be a supplier of GM. Um, so kind of they had some downside protection there. Um, and so, yeah, the DuPont investment kind of helped GM maybe um, in terms of being more of a professional organization. Um, and, and it's interesting to think about that too. And maybe the last thing in the report, I was pretty bummed in these early days, there's no income statement given, um, which I would have loved to see over time, you know, how, uh, to go further up the income statement, see how gross margins change and and SG&A costs and stuff too. Just because they in some years they have a lot of what they call non-recurring expenses, and it's really hard to see that fluctuation, and it's hard to decide for yourself really what's going on on the income side of things. Um, but you get net profit um, and and some things like that. You get a full balance sheet, which is nice. But I wish the income statement, I wish more disclosure was given there. What was so interesting about this time period and just the more you study a bunch of different companies in history is um, the capital cycles that happen, right? And what happened in the automobile industry, I mean, it's basically the same thing that you see today, right? There's this new technology and then there's a bunch of money that chases it. 
and there's an oversupply of companies uh, chasing those profits, more competition, and then these companies run into financial problems and there's consolidation. And then you sort of get this new cycle that comes out of it. So I think you had said that um, there were something like 2000 car companies uh, started in the early 1900s. I um, basically that is the consensus uh, from my own research too. I saw somebody say 1800, I saw 2000, but basically 2000 cars. I'm kind of curious, like, were these pretty, I mean, like, I was trying to think back or think about it. I'm like, okay, 2000 companies trying to do this. That's a lot. Like, is that, you know, a person in his garage that incorporates with a thousand dollars to try making something out of this, you know, is it, I just wonder like the scale of, of these failures, if they were, you know, large or whatnot, because 2000 companies failing obviously sounds like a lot, but I was just curious if any of you, maybe Jeff, uh, have, um, any sort of idea on like the scale of that, or if that was even something that was, you know, meaningful, or is that more so just sort of a, a hot topic? Well, I mean, I think Sloan talks about in the book that most just produce like concept about this, you know, uh, whatever he may have called them, whether it's specimens or I, I forget what term he used, but basically prototypes that they didn't go mm -hmm. into regular production, right? I think the difference is if you had regular production from one year to the next. There's a few like I I, I knew someone whose dad uh, reconstructed cars from the uh, around this time period, actually around 1918 or something, and there's a lot of cars that didn't make it for many model years. So, um, I mean, there'd be a car that people really liked or something, but it, it ran for two years, you know? Um, to actually be in regular production for a while, the, I don't know that there were a lot of those. And all the ones we're talking about are that way. And we should also point out, I think, like, when you're talking about Buick or, or Olds, I guess it was called at the time, um, it, like, when early on in their sales, it's like one car that they have. It's not that they're producing, like, a whole lineup of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, and some of the acquisitions GM made, they talk about they bought a car company. In some cases, it's not like Cadillac. It's like, like you said, it's more research design, not any production, but maybe they built some prototypes and they, they acquired that too. So it takes a lot of capital to do a full production. So I assume a lot of companies were more the prototype stage, stuff like that. Um, and I'm curious too, on that topic though, on, uh, like you said, Andrew, the capital cycle, um, in some years, like I said, it's tough with not a full income statement to really get a picture. So I didn't talk about it too much in my podcast, but in the 1910s, 1920s, there's some years of a lot better return on equities than I would assume for a company like GM. Um, and I'm sure Ford did too. I don't have too much financials from them as Ford, Henry Ford took them private at some point, but you know, they were able to finance production without, um, and finance high growth without bringing in too much equity investors. So I'm curious, one, what your thoughts are on maybe like return on equities for those companies in the early years. And if there's anything to learn from like Tesla, BYD, some of the new companies today, um, there's so much supply di competitive difficulties, but, um, is there anything to learn on like maybe return on capital of the ones who are happen to be successful in the early days? Yeah, I don't have anything too insightful to add, but I did do a return equity number because I wanted to compare it to today and I was surprised at how high it was. And I was wondering if that, you know, part of that was sort of the uh, criticism that a lot of the industrials in this uh, time frame get like, you know, cheap labor and working people like crazy and not, you know, paying them a, a ton and stuff like that, um, you know. Uh, like from an expense standpoint and stuff like that. But no, I mean, I was surprised as well. Maybe Jeff has more insight on that, but the ROEs were 
were, uh, I mean, more than like 10%. I mean, I think one of the years I got like 15 or 16 or 17%. So I was kind of shocked by that as well. Yeah. I mean, there are years where it seems like you have uh return on sales. It's over 10% and you're probably having one and a half turns or something. So they're probably like that. And that would really be without leverage doing that. Um, like we said, though, you know, if you are in a situation where like Tesla was early on in their history, or like you were talking about with Ford, where they weren't even able to meet the demand that they had, um, then you're going to have pretty good pricing. Right. Um, there's also a difference that uh, obviously the numbers that we're seeing, um, they're not having to pay taxes on that. Uh, later on, I think you talk about the war years, they pay taxes then. But that is a difference. I don't know how important that is, because, you know, theoretically, if you have higher taxes on things, then you'd have less investment in the industry. As a result, people take into account that they're going to pay higher taxes. So it's not like you just have very high returns on capital usually if you don't have a lot of taxes and then you have lower returns if you do have a lot of taxes. Usually people take that into account investing in the industry. But that obviously attracted some of it. But all these years too, it's still way, way lower the returns on equity that they could have versus how much growth they would need to be able to meet demand to keep their market share the next year. So these companies can't self-finance, really, even if you had very high returns. Um, because I think, uh, like, let's say a few years before the period we're talking about here, let's say between like 1908 and 1918, I mean, the industry's going up three or four times uh, in size in just a few years. You know, it, it, I didn't do calculations of the exact growth uh, the exact growth rates but you would need returns on equity of 100 percent or something to be able to maintain your market share and and not um now I, I know that gm did not pay a dividend though which is very unusual for that period right it wasn't until the dupont investment that they actually just had a large dividend and everything i think they talk about that so that would have been very unusual usually companies early on in their history unlike today would start paying a dividend pretty early. You know, um, as soon as you had profits for a couple of years, you'd immediately be paying a dividend. You would not be like tech companies today or something where you could go 10 years and not pay a dividend when you're making money. So when you talk about like the growth and the speed of that growth and needing to tap outside financing, is there any industry today that reminds you a lot of this time frame? I mean, would you put electric vehicles in that, that style box or is there anything that sort of reminds you of it? I mean, I, I think, yeah, there's some similarities to electric. I think that's possible, but um, uh, the, the difference, of course, is, you know, and, and DuPont invested in this um, and held it for like 30 years, I think. You know, they were they had to because of an antitrust issue, right? They had to get rid of it uh, mm -hmm. because of mm -hmm. the purchases yeah. you were talking about. Because um, Ben Graham wrote about it at one time in his memoirs because he did an arbitrage thing um, to be long DuPont and short GM, because GM stock eventually got very popular, DuPont not so much, and so you could get DuPont for less than the value of their GM stake. Um, but I think the big difference is like, we're talking about large amounts of investment in an industry like say electric cars, or, or when we talk about streaming, let's say, or a lot of these, that comes from other corporations that already exist that are very big and have very big, um, very low cost of capital. Um, here, we're talking about much more, like we were saying, with people in their garages coming up with ideas, thousands of companies. The the DuPont thing backing them is a big deal when it happens. But this, uh, do you remember you talked about, Jacob, when this became the biggest industry in the United States? Do you remember when that was, roughly? <clears throat> yeah, I think, uh, I believe in the 1920 annual report, they kind of start um, 
yeah, yeah. yeah start that report by going through all the different it's basically the biggest industry at that time mm-hmm yeah uh he goes over it right here so the roaring 20s we could jump into it the automobile industry is new in every sense. Records show that the first garage for the storage and repair of motor cars was opened in Boston, Massachusetts in the spring of 1899. In that year, the investment in the industry was 5.8 million with the production of 3,700 cars. While in 1919, the investment was estimated at 1.8 billion. Uh, so that's uh, gone, gone up. And then you could see right here, uh, in this annual report, they break down other industries, petroleum, 775 million, pig iron, 809 million, cotton, a billion, wheat, 1.1 billion, coal was 1.9 ish and men and women's clothing was about 2 billion. So yeah, it's, it was, it became a very big industry very quickly. Billions of dollars of investment in, in the early 1900s is a uh, pretty high, pretty high investment, uh, inflation adjusted. Yeah, I did. It was like 315 billion or something like that. I mean, just, I mean, that's huge, yeah. <laughs> huge. So 1920s, the roaring twenties, uh, what was something that, you know, originally stood out to you in 1920 and then we could, you know, talk about this annual report. Yeah. Um, yeah, they do. DuPont takes over and they do start paying a dividend kind of throughout the 20s and into the, the Great Depression. It's a little bit funny to me when you're paying a dividend, but also issuing stock to, to raise money. So you need to raise capital, but yet you're paying a dividend. It, I guess it maybe reminds me today of companies that, um, you know, maybe buy back stock, but issue a ton of ton of stock through uh, stock options and stuff like that, too. Um, you're kind of doing one step forward, one step back in a way. Um, but yeah, it's a high high capital investment in the industry and yet the management talks about how a lot of people at least maybe in the media or, or um, citizens and stuff some people are are unconvinced of the car lasting some people say it's it's a good economic time period post-war um, it's a luxury vehicle it's it's fun people are just blowing money on it but um, it's not really going to be a serious industry long term. Uh, some people had that view. And so you are spending a lot of money, a lot of capex on something that for some people was still a, a big question mark if, if it would change American life day to day over the long term, um, which, is, which is one interesting aspect in the 20s. Um, and then this report in particular was interesting to me too because um, so much growth, some years, I mean, sales doubles for the industry or whatever in a single year. But then every once in a while, they take like a step back or economic downturn where all of a sudden sales come to a halt when companies are not expecting that. And so this is one instance where um, by late 1920, uh, GM had a serious inventory problem, which was kind of interesting to, to take a look at. Jeff, can you set the stage for what uh, life would have been like from an economic standpoint in uh, the 1920s? So we think about that, that comes later in the period, and particularly the stock market bubble around from like 26 to 29. Um, but it's similar to the 1990s that way. That doesn't get started till later. And this is a very, very severe, though short, depression. Um, they would call it a depression back then. We call it a recession now, but very sharp. That happens in 1920, 1921. Um, it, it's close to only something like what happened in the 70s um, or maybe what happened when Volcker raised rates a lot. Um, very briefly in the 80s. But again, very sharp re uh, recession. You have deflation coming out of the war because you'd had inflation during the war. And so this was like really brutal change in the 
uh, speed of the economy from growing to contracting really rapidly. And of course you had a, you know, pandemic and everything a few years before the same as, you know, today, but you have this mix from going from wartime to, to peace. And what would happen then had happened every time in American history when this happened is that you went into def deflation when you went into peacetime. And this was a really severe, but short, um, uh, depression that is not talked about that much today. And so that's part of it coming in the roaring twenties, like in the 1990s with a recession really early in the period. It's also that you're coming out of that. So like when we talk about stocks and everything, they were really cheap at the bottom of this period. And then the earnings really recover quickly from that. But Jacob, do you want to talk about like the inventory situation that we're uh, with this? Because that was a big part of like when they talk about this period economically, people talk a lot about inventory liquidation, that the country was liquidating, you know, having had too much in inventory. That was kind of the cause of this recession. Yeah. Yeah. And GM had to do that. And um, you mentioned how sharp this downturn was. And I'm sure the Great Depression was bad. And, and at times it was sharp. But I think the reason it stands out to people is because it was so long at least some people list it from 1929 to 1939, like 10 tough years. Uh, the length of time stands out to everybody versus there maybe were worse periods or tougher short, very short term periods that they just happen to recover quickly from, which maybe it leaves people's minds. Um, like I, I've never really thought of 1920 as any particularly bad year or anything uh, to me. Uh, they did have deflation. Um, so that was inventory as well as um, some of the price commitments they entered into before maybe realizing there was gonna be deflation, both of those impacted this period. So um, management at least you know, writes about how, after they get into some issues, management writes about how they set budgets and set limits to their divisions, told them maybe to slow down or, or not exceed 150 million in inventory. Uh, these divisions blow past it. So either lack of controls, tougher communication, maybe slower communication back then. Um, you know, it, it's uh, GM was very decentralized. And so um, these some of these divisions operated as if they were separate companies, maybe Cadillac feeling like they're a separate company than than um, Chevrolet or whatever. Uh, so management set an uh, inventory limit of 150 million. It ends up being $210 million, $60 million over. Um, there was a sharp decrease in in revenue, and yet they still were keeping up production at high rates and entering into future like purchase commitments for supplies and stuff as if there was no revenue downturn or maybe as if they thought revenue would bounce back. Um, there's a, they sell it through retail channels, obviously like, like dealerships. And so maybe there was a lack of communication there in terms of the dealers might've been buying inventory or buying, you know, cars at a, a similar rate. Maybe it was a slower reaction in terms of, uh, dealers as well, like the end consumer, um, you know, how, how sales were doing between the dealer and the end consumer. So that's something that management talks about they got better at later on as well. Um, but um, but $210 million of inventory, that was a major portion of the balance sheet, very high. And they had to, they had a big cash crunch, so they had to finance that inventory with short-term debt of $83 million. And so um, short-term debt on inventory that you're struggling to sell and purchase commitments that look like high prices now because of deflation, um, yeah, they, they had some real financial difficulty in this period. They're very slow to react. Um, it kind of reminded me of the Geico period we just talked about. Geico was maybe a little slow to react to inflation, slow to raise their prices. Um, you could have a great history, but if you don't execute in these tough businesses like insurance and car, car, the car industry, 
you can really run into uh, to some problems. And so it shows GM and Geico are both in industries where you really had to execute every day. And GM ran into an issue here where they kind of failed to execute in it. It did kind of threaten the company a little bit in this in this period in terms of how much debt they had to take on. And if it was if if the Great Depression if this lasted ten years like the Great Depression did, um, you know GM I'm sure would have went bankrupt. But it was such a quick downturn that they're actually able to uh, liquidate inventory, like you mentioned, Jeff. Serious liquidation, and then um, uh, they were able to recover. I was uh, thinking the same thing when I read through this. I mean, Jeff, do you think? that it was lack of internal controls or communication that caused this big discrepancy. I mean, I was, A, when I was reading through it, I actually appreciated how blunt he was about, you know, this is what happened. And this is because sometimes I feel like public companies may just kind of come up with a lame excuse. But he was basically like, hey, this was the budget that we set and we basically blew right past that and didn't manage it correctly and not only that but i think he also said that like those individuals are are no longer with the company um but i'm curious jeff i mean what do you think caused that was it just the product at the time without having email and excel and being able to track everything down to the penny like you can today i mean i i, I talked a little bit about, this about the podcast but i went to a walmart um coming out of COVID happening that was horribly overstocked to the point it couldn't take any more deliveries. Trucks were sitting out in the parking lot. Things were, uh, you know, had to be piled up in the aisles and everything. And it it's just an issue of, you know, these orders happened during a period of a lot of expansion and when they thought things were suddenly growing a lot to contraction. Now, in the case of like Walmart and Amazon and some of those, it may be more understandable because a company like that expects units might grow by a couple percent. Like, say, your supermarket. You expect a couple percent. A year would be a good year for you if it changes by that much, and suddenly it's changing 20% or something because of COVID. So it's unprecedented, and you don't understand what's happening. But this was still a very fast-growing industry, so it would make sense that they were growing really fast, and they didn't know what would happen in a uh, recession, uh, that it could change so quickly that way, right? And as you talked about with the um, retail channels, right, that may not have been all that well-developed, there were a lot of them, right? There were huge numbers of them, and probably many of them weren't selling all that many. Um, they were new. You know, they, there probably weren't actually that many retail outlets that had been around for very long. And so all of this is stuff that people may not have had a lot of experience with. You know, um, Atari in video games, right, had a year where they had massive losses because of inventory problems. It was a new industry. People didn't really know how bad it could be if you thought you were going to have a hit and you didn't. Um, and people may not have known how discretionary it was in terms of that there'll be years where people will put off for a year, right? I mean, even though the the uh, there was no lack of demand in the long term for cars, there's no reason why people had to buy it that year that you would buy it in a year in which it was um, bad economically. So you can certainly put it off for a couple of years. I do remember you talking about on the podcast, the Walmart that you're in, I think you had said it was horrifying to you. And then it seemed like, I don't know, four or five, six months later, we started seeing all these articles in the Wall Street Journal about them basically not wanting the inventory back. We'll pay you for it if you want to return it, but we actually don't want it because we don't have anywhere for this. And all these companies like Target and Walmart, they were going through their inventory problems. I was just going to say, do you you think part of it's they're scared of, you know, if they guess wrong and competition gets more sales on them because they just weren't ready to have inventory stocked? Do you think it's kind of scared of, of losing sales to the competitors in that aspect? Yeah, I mean, most retail things know that the easiest way to lose sales is not to have it in stock, right? 
Um, that's the really big problem. That's the problem for like when we talk, you could talk about Tesla or something. Could they do have too much inventory at times or whatever? But they know that the problem is that if you don't, if you say electric cars, right? If you don't have something that's that new and that popular, um, it's very easy for it to be that something else will sell, uh, you know, game consoles or something, right? If you're both coming out within a year of each other, you're at risk if you don't have your Xbox out at the same time that Sony has their PlayStation out or something. Um, otherwise, you won't lose the sale. If you're available and people prefer you for whatever reason, then you're going to get that sale. But the easiest way is to not have it in stock, right? And, you know, you talked about with that with the Model T and everything, that they weren't able to meet demand sometimes. That means that it's spilled over into other people, um making money right because they in essence grew the industry got people comfortable with it and then that creates a situation where you might be interested in other sorts of cars and uh you know that happens with any of these but it certainly happens with the retail thing right Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. if you don't have the inventory then someone else is going to be able to um make the sale but the problem is if you see a fast increase and and this is also a big deal because of the like we talked about the inflation and then the deflation happening that way but but that happens even now because i mean i remember looking at tesla after uh during covid time right and people were talking about how they had an improvement in their um profit and everything and when i looked at it there was a period of probably about six months or so where i don't think on a real basis they actually made money as a car company it was all from holding the stock for that period. That inflation was so high that the entire profit margin, you could have 20%, 25% returns on your sales just because you held something. And so you went from a period of inflation to a period of deflation. It might've been something they really weren't used to. And the other thing is it had been a very long time since they'd had major inflation and deflation in, in the country. Um, just like now, you know, it was something that wasn't that familiar to them. Um, it probably was... The last time there was a recession that bad was probably 50 years before, I think, in the 1870s was probably the last time there was one as sharp, as bad as what happened there. So, you know, people wouldn't have, no one would have had experience, firsthand experience. I always wonder, like, is that even the right answer, though, to a lot of these things? I mean, even today you're hearing about Amazon and how they overbuilt, like, their warehouses and they're, um, you know, started to basically offload um, that and get that off their books and whatnot. I mean, to your point, Jeff, I mean, Amazon sort of, they would rather die than uh, not having inventory on, you know, their website or whatever, or for whatever reason, somebody having to go to Walmart or jet.com or walmart.com or wherever else people shop than go to Amazon. I mean, they probably knew, I imagine that they were going to like overbuild and then run into issues maybe, but that was better than the alternative of not being able to fulfill whatever that customer wanted. Yeah. And you know, you, you turn, it turns around quickly what happens. I mean, I think the lag is a big part of it that you committed to these things and then you agree to take them, you know, because one factor, like when we talk about inflation stuff is if they can get data on how much overordering there is, that's a really good indicator of whether there's going to be inflation in the industry. So if someone is, if, but it's very hard to gather that as like a government or anything like that. But if you find out that really Dollar General, Walmart, whoever is saying, oh, I'll order five boxes. I really only want three, but I don't think you'll get me my order. So I'm going to overorder so that you fill part of it so that I get the amount that I actually need. Because at some point, they'll eventually fill those orders. So the unfilled orders part of it. And sometimes that's a really big part of it when suddenly all the orders get filled uh, coming out of it when the demand drops off, you know, and suddenly you're able to meet demand. 
Jacob, do you want to talk a little bit about um, how cars were sold at this time? Like how many um, dealers there might have been out there, how many they were selling, how new it was, any of those sorts of things? Yeah, like you, you kind of mentioned, the sales channels were less developed, so there were dealerships. Um, but Alfred Sloan, who takes over for Billy Durant, and he wrote that book we referenced a few times, one thing he was able to do or, or kind of champion later on is help develop the, the dealership model in terms of um, – you know, GM, I guess, didn't like own dealerships and um, you could look at it as one of their customers, but at the same time, like helping get more organized in your communication with dealers and help get more organized in terms of um, standards, in terms of accounting. Um, one thing they had was, yeah, a GM accounting subsidiary, an audit or something that would like work with the dealership organizations. And so that's one way they're able to develop like the... Um, the dealership business, the number, I don't know the exact number of dealerships. It was huge, but, uh, in the annual report, they talk about, um, the number, but they mix in like, uh, the number of dealerships, like mechanic shops, gas stations. I think they call them charging stations, which for a second, I was like, I knew electric cars were a thing in the very, very early days, but I think they called gas stations like charging stations. So, um, yeah, that number's, um, the number they give is huge. Is it 178,000? It says there, which I yeah, imagine yep. can't be just dealerships. That's a huge number, but charging stations, garages and repair shops. Yeah. But, but based on that, we can kind of imagine, was it possible? I mean, I don't know enough about the history about the really small scale stuff, but was it possible that some of those shops were thinking, Oh, I'll buy a couple cars and I, I could sell two cars a year or something, you know, that these things that are involved in other parts of the business of, like we're saying, you know, that we would think only as service stations and things at the time thought, hey, this is a really fast growing business. Maybe I can be an outlet for that. You know, we think really strictly about a difference between the place that's going to sell you your car and things that are going to work on it and do other things. But at the time, it might not have been clear that if you were in the business providing uh, gasoline, that you're in the business providing service, which probably was a pretty important business at the time. There were a lot less reliable cars and there was a lot of differences between them, right? That maybe you'd also be involved in other parts of it, you know? They may not have known that it'd be such a consolidated industry that way. Yeah, and it's just a good way to think about in the early industry, it's very hard to tell how it's going to develop in terms of how the car is made. Yeah, the retail channels. It's just, there's so much more, um, so, so much unclear back in this time period. So do you want to talk about also um, the acquisition of Fisher Body Corporation and how that affected the situation of General Motors? Yeah, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think, because in my opinion, this is a big part of the story, too. Um, and it just made me think of, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos. I heard an a interview a long time ago that this reminded me of. He, he said AWS had very little like-minded competition for eight years, and he said he didn't know of any story like that, of having that big of, of a lag. Um businesses it's usually he brought up all the different businesses like uh amazon.com barnesandnoble.com launched two years later and he brought up a few different things where it's always like two years someone jumps um gm in the 1919 annual report they talk about they acquire fisher body which mostly it was the biggest in terms of closed bodied cars which open body versus closed body i think of it kind of like a convertible versus not but i guess back then all cars kind of had an open body and i think I think if you look at pictures, some kind of looked closed, but I think it's more of like a, a very loose cover on top of, of some of these was kind of like what an open body might look like. So uh, GM talks about the rise of closed bodies in 1919 annual report. And um, um, 
G and Ford, the Model T um, was a cl- open body design. And so Ford closed their plant in 1927 to remodel and kind of shut down production of the Model T. And so really from 1919, when GM makes this acquisition, all the way till 1927, you know, eight years, um, Ford really wasn't doing much with closed bodies. They did put a closed body car on the Model T, like a closed body on the Model T. Alfred Sloan talks about it wasn't really um, how the engineering design should have been for the Model T. So I guess they put a closed body on something that wasn't really supposed to have it, I, I guess, or something. Um, so Ford was very slow to adjust to the closed body design. Um, and it shows GM was diverse. Like I said, their philosophy was variety and diversity in terms of how engineering and designs could change over time. The closed body was one example where they talk about it in 1919. Ford doesn't really do anything about it until 1927. In 1992, I believe in that report, they talk about forming GMAC internally too, which is interesting. Um, we could talk, GMAC would be an interesting thing to talk about too. Um, Ford, Henry Ford himself didn't really believe in um, financing cars, I guess. Um, you know, he wasn't really against that kind of consumer debt. And so Ford really didn't have a comparable financing program in the same way GMAC did until um, maybe even 1928 or 29 or something. So that's another example where they're like nine years behind GMAC. So just back to that Jeff Bezos quote where it's unheard of to have an eight-year head start. It's, there's a couple examples where uh, GM had a um, you know eight or nine-year head start in a few different areas. Why do you think Ford was so slow to uh, adopt this new... Um this new method of a, you know, a closed door car, right? So, uh, you know, one thing that I thought was interesting in these reports reading, like General Motors, they seem so focused on the customer and like what the customer wanted. And then Ford was very slow to change. This is our way. We're not going to do this. We're not like those other guys. Why do you think that is? When I picture Henry Ford and I'm, I think about his personality just from some of these biographies and stuff, I picture an, a very old school mindset where it's like, uh, people shouldn't take out debt, so I'm not, I'm not gonna, you know, we're not gonna have a financing program. These these people shouldn't be going into debt. It's that's not that's not good. Or we want the lowest in a very very strict focus on the lowest cost. So he's maybe I just picture someone saying like uh, a new colors frivolous. We don't need that. Don't you know? He, he doesn't care what what people are demanding. He's like we don't need that. We're gonna do the lowest cost car possible. I maybe I know what's best. Um, that's, that's kind of like what I picture when I think of his, his mentality. And I think his focus, so many founders have like a, such a, a focus to get, to execute. So for, he did a great job executing in the early days to get his top position. And one way was keeping the cost low because a lot of consumers weren't buying cars in the very early days. So him focusing and getting the cost as low as possible and not offering, as many things maybe help develop the car industry and maybe benefited GM and, and other companies and stuff too. And so in one way, his focus and, and stubbornness benefited the industry and Ford early on, but eventually was his downfall. What are your thoughts on the GMAC uh, program and just different innovations that were brought to uh, you know the market during this time, right? Such as, as you said, like installment sales, I imagine was very good for, for GM and, and um, you know part of the recipe for their success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I would love to hear uh, your thoughts on this too, but um, GMAC bankers at the time thought it would be very unsafe to loan against uh, the automobile. Consumer financing was not prevalent and it was thought of, like I said, as a luxury 
and for sport. And so um, maybe risk takers or people wasting their money or, or something. So, you know, bankers did not want to loan those kind of people money against against a toy or something um, is, is kind of what it how people thought of it. So as the industry developed, it became a very big industry and there was no financing for then consumer and for dealers themselves. And so that's kind of how GMAC was formed. I don't think it was any big master plan of we're going to have this big profit center or whatever. It's, um, they saw a gap in the market and, um, you know, they were able to, I think first the main focus was finance dealer inventory, at least the way they talk about it. GMAC was to, to finance dealer inventory. And then it also adds and almost at the end of the sentence, they talk about and consumers as well. But I think dealers were the, the number one uh, start to it. And then, um, you know, they finance for consumers too. And it proved through this period in 1920 and in the Great Depression, um, generally loan losses were low. People were paying their loans. So it turned out to be a good asset to lend against. Um, but at the time, there was a gap in the market and people weren't, um, weren't doing that. And um, I guess it, it kind of makes sense a little bit from a distribution perspective of um, GM, yeah, had had uh, maybe that, yeah, they had the distribution set up to to sell these loans to their dealer network and to the end consumer. And um, if if they uh, had to repossess the car, they had a network a retail network to kind of resell that. Maybe they could fix it up if they needed to a little bit because they were the expert on the cars. And so it, it kind of makes sense there. Um, and so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts one on that and two. Um, just thinking about that, it, I always wondered why maybe car insurance never really took off, at least as far as I know, in terms of the car maker themselves in the same way that uh, auto loans did. And the only thing I could come up with here is that there was no real gap in the market the same way that auto loans was. And then maybe the second thing is uh, car insurance, you have like medical costs and you have to understand the driver themselves, not just the car. Um, maybe that's that's the things I could come up with of maybe why car insurance companies were able to differentiate themselves and kind of uh, um, not go through the car makers. But but what do you guys think about that? Yeah, that's something that's always interesting that, you know, um, in this early period at least, and for a very long time, you had the car makers themselves involved in all of this financing to help sell the stuff, which isn't unusual now to think about that, whether we're talking about appliances, mattresses, whatever. It's a huge part of how the product is sold and without it, it, it wouldn't happen. Um, it is interesting. And I wonder what GM would have done if they probably just experiment with it. And if they had had large losses early on GMAC, just wouldn't have continued, you know, they shut down plenty of things. So it's probably just something if you're not betting the whole company on it, uh, it turned out, like you said, that the loan losses were very low compared to what people expected. And it wasn't something that banks were willing to get into and everything. Um, so it, it worked out well for them. Uh, it is also interesting why, you know, there wasn't, uh, why, why people weren't rushing in to lend against this early on because it was such a fast growing industry, you know? Um, but it, it's also interesting that there weren't all these big companies that were putting up, uh, capital to finance the, the car makers early on, you know, that they were under capitalized and everything. So it's a big difference between today and how these things work and versus what it was like then. And that could lead into, we could talk about the 1932 annual report and the, the Great Depression period because, yeah, GMAC, it says business kind of slowed down a little bit for GMAC in that period, but it still said they had a substantial profit in the early Great Depression in 1932. GMAC themselves had a substantial profit, um, maybe not GM, the, the overall company. 
And then even in the height of the Great Depression, it said um, loan losses were below 1%. I think they think they basically mean, yeah, 1% of the total value of the, the loans. Um, and so loan losses were low. GMAC was profitable. Um, and the Great Depression, I guess, is a great way to uh, test that business model there. Um, but yeah, as we get into this 1932 annual report, Andrew, you mentioned you felt like the management was pretty blunt. And they are in this report, too. And I, I wonder if that's one reason why Buffett maybe liked the report. It, I think um, I think he likes, it seems like he likes that uh, maybe uh, Jack Byrne and, and Geico kind of more bluntness. Uh, some of Buffett's reports, he's a little more blunt in some cases. And then, um, I don't know, maybe that's why he enjoyed this report. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to set the stage for people listening, uh, net earnings from operations for the year 1932 after full depreciation charges uh, were $165,000, okay? Uh, this compares with earnings of $115 million from operations for the year 1931. So uh, uh, I guess uh, barely profitable, and that's a huge jump uh, in one year, jump in uh, the direction that you do not want to go. Uh, so what happened in 1932, Jacob? Yeah, yeah, so they were profitable all through this first part of the Great Depression, even though, yeah, in this year, $115,000 is basically nothing. Um, but they were still positive. Um, and so maybe the Great Depression to start, 1929 started out as a big jump in sales the start of the year. I think it meant management talks about the stock market was up big at the start of the year. And then both the economy, car sales, and the stock market all kind of crashes towards the tail end of the year. So I think 1929 itself um, in terms of sales, I think was pretty flat or single digit growth or whatever, but that doesn't really tell the story of throughout the year, a, a big jump and uh, all of a sudden, um, yeah, sales kind of drop off. Um, from 1929 to 1932, revenue was down 70% at GM and really throughout the industry, you know, unit sales revenue for all companies for the whole industry was down over 70% as well, maybe closer to 80%. So a major jump down. And so when I first see that, it's like I saw how difficult the 1920 period is. In a single year, they had about the same decrease in, in sales. And then for a three-year period, far bigger decrease in sales. Um, and so you'd think if the same organization, if they were operating the same way as 1920 in this 1932 period, they would have experienced some major problems. And maybe I could carry on through there with uh, just back to inventory. In 1932, they end with $75 million of inventory. I mentioned in 1920 it was $210 million they reached, but that's, nine, that's 12 years later. This was a much larger organization 12 years later. Maybe sales in this one year wasn't you know any bigger, but in 1929, they had $1.5 billion of sales, triple maybe the, the earlier period. So um, a far larger organization in terms of employees, in terms of what they're used to in sales, maybe what they plan for in terms of unit volume, a uh, far larger organization, but yet... They were able to halt production, have inventory control, and have 75 million of inventory at the end of 1932 versus 210 million for such a large organization. So three years into an industrial um, depression, I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, did they make any other changes to like their manufacturing process uh, during this time to really adapt? I mean, we are reading this now on a screen, but. Imagine being like, you know, during this time frame, you're three years into it and, you know, your sales go from uh, over 100 million to basically nothing. Uh, did they change anything 
during this time to really adapt through this time period? Yeah, the thing that stuck out, stood out to me right away was 1929 through 32 annual reports. They talk about um, kind of shrinking the business, at least in terms of uh, production. And so I'm sure operating costs, you know, they let off some employees and they were they were tight with their operating costs, but they did not skimp on R&D or technological improvements. They still kept spending money on R&D. They talk about how they're investing for the future in that aspect. Um, and so one, they let cash pile up through the 1920s a little bit. They still made some acquisitions. They bought, I mean, even everything from an airplane maker to airplane parts, radio makers, other car companies and car suppliers and stuff through the 20s. But each year they added a little more cash, uh, even though they're paying a dividend, they still cash kind of piled up on the balance sheet through the 20s. Um, so they were in a good position when the Great Depression hit, uh, maybe slightly luck, but also just from pretty safe, conservative operations, letting cash pile up. Uh, then they were very quick to cut production. And then, but they're financially, since they had so much cash and since they prepared and executed so well, they were able to still spend money on R&D and, and improve the product. And, and so not only it was, they're like debt free and had a lot of cash. So it looked like, you know, pretty safe bet they were going to survive. Maybe their competition sometimes didn't know, you know, weren't as, uh, sure they'd survive number one and number two gm was in a good position to keep investing in r d and technological improvements where their comp comp competition maybe was not so that was the main thing that stood out and they still paid dividends in this period so dividends exceeded net income 1929 to 32 which i know there was very little income in 32 but still talking in the hundreds of millions the couple years before um, they still paid out some nice dividends to shareholders in this period you have up on the screen there the net working capital position, or you had it up a second ago. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, as Jacob was talking about, you know, so obviously very liquid and would have seemed very safe at the time, uh, except for the fact that it was losing lots of money. But you assume at some point that comes back, or you wouldn't be investing in a car company at all, you know, if, if you didn't think, if you thought it was going to stay down 70, 80% from where it was before and never come back up then you're making a bet that the industries, you know, there's never going to be the adoption of the car as widely as uh, people originally expected, right? Um, if you just think that eventually this is a depression that will end, then this is a company that looks a lot safer than the one that we saw in 1920, right? Given how tough the car business is and given how hard this time period was, why do you think Munger and uh, you know Lee Lu are so comfortable investing in BYD? I mean, ultimately Buffett, even though Jeff had said he thought Buffett was probably dragging his feet on that, and Munger really pushed him for it. Like, given that they know that this is probably the same playbook uh, of you know this is this was a very challenging time where you had so much investment going in, so much competition. Like, how do you think they got comfortable with a company like BYD when they know that you know this happened? Yeah, I was going to say, I was trying to remember who Munger compared uh, the founder of BYD to. Was it Henry Ford and Thomas Edison? It was It was two people. One of them was Henry Ford, I'm sure. So it made a point that it was a big bet on a single person. But it is interesting when we're talking about Ford, the period that didn't go so well for them. Obviously, they had an early period where they had huge dominance and got, you know, in a period of, a, what, a decade from coming out with their first model, they were had most of the market, right? And the market had grown tremendously. Um, so, you know, you, you did very well with that. And, um, but the, who the leader was, like we talked about changed, right? Um, 
So uh, th- that's a question for you, uh, Jacob. Um, I, but yes, I did say I think that that's definitely much more Munger than Buffett. Buffett did it because Munger wanted it, I think. Yeah, it's something I've spent time thinking about. I don't know if I really have a good answer. I know, and I swear in, in an interview Lee Lu has done, he's talked about studying the early GM history. Munger has talked about multiple times studying um, the early GM history. Maybe that was a slight inspiration for the, the book I wrote, Capital Allocation. I remember in one of the annual meetings, Munger talked about how you know business school should teach, should go through year by year in like a value line type way, but explaining the numbers, um, a company like GM and different companies like that. And that's kind of like, I guess, the the way I tried to write write the book I did on Berkshire. Um, and then when I take a look at, at these podcasts, I guess that's kind of how I'm trying to, to think of it for when I study GM here. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer. I know that's one thing that piqued my interest when even the return on equity we already talked about, but in some years I saw it even went over 20%. Um, and so just comparing that to the present day, I didn't know if that's, that's one thing they saw of, of um, some of the companies that that uh, rise to the top in the early days, if it's a, kind of a better business than others. But, but I don't really know. There's so much supply, so much competition, especially in China. There's a ton of electric car companies that seem to be getting adoption. Um, and maybe just the one thing I could think of, again, not a great answer, but uh, BYD themselves was started outside of the car business. And I, I know I've read, Mung, well, Munger and Lee Lu talked about, they tried to talk BYD out of entering the car business in the first place. So they liked the founder and they liked maybe the business and, and stuff even before they entered the car business. But um, I know it's a company that, was able to kind of like spawn off into different industries, different businesses and have some success. So I don't know if that's that's where they are coming from with that investment too. But it's something I think about a lot. I don't know if I have a good answer, but it's a pretty interesting thing to study. Mm-hmm. So Jeff had hit on, you know, uh, the networking capital position was good. Jacob, you talked about they were still paying a dividend, which is good. Do you have any um, idea of like how Ford was uh, weathering the... Uh, the Great Depression. I mean, obviously, GM was doing okay through it as best as they possibly could. Uh, what did it look like for Ford? Yeah, I do know they shut down production completely for, I believe, close to a year in 1927 to remodel the Model T. By that time, or I mean, really, I think stop the Model T and, and put new models into production. Um, it was a private company at that point, And I don't think they went public again until the 50s. Uh, basically, Henry Ford uh, was able to take back control when they were in the early 20s and late teens or whatever when they were dominant. Um, but um, so, yeah, uh, in 1927, basically Ford had zero sales. Uh, private company, they were able to just stop. Um, and then, uh, so they had a lot of sales after that. Once they started back up production, maybe some of that missed sales they missed kind of got pushed forward into other years, like leading into like 1928, 29, maybe even a little bit. 1930. I think in Alfred Sloan's book, he says um, by the time they shut down production in 1927, Ford was forever kind of lost their position for good, even though he, he mentioned in like 1929, 30, and I think 32, Ford regained the top spot for those few years. Basically, Alfred Sloan was saying that was just a very temporary phenomenon. Um, you know, 32, well, 28, 1928, 1929 could have just been because they lost some sales when they shut down and that got pushed into a new year. 1932 could have been when you're at the height of the Great Depression, people might have reverted back to that uh, cheapest 
Model T type mindset, basic transportation kind of thing. I don't know exactly. Um, so to answer your question, it was a private company, so I don't have a great understanding of it. But um, I know in 1932 and, and some of the years leading up to that, they regained their spot on top. Um, but after 1932, I think from that point on, GM um, was was the uh, leader for decades to come. And for people listening, so the total number of cars and trucks sold in um 1932 was 1.4 million to add context to that uh in 1921 it was 1.7 million cars sold so uh you know that was down a lot and um the height was 1929 which was 5.6 million so it was back to in 1932 the annual report we're referencing it was basically back to below 1921 um and down from 1929 of 5.6 million and estimated retail sales value in 1932 was about a billion, which was down from a peak in 1929 of 4.7 billion. So you talk about, I mean, just a full on stop um, in the industry. Yeah, major, major change there. Jeff, was there anything else to you that stood out? Why do you think Buffett says 1932 is one of the best annual reports? he's ever read. I mean, given he's read probably about a million in his own life. I'm curious, do you think that was just uh, how blunt they were about everything and just truthful about all of it? Why do you think he thinks that? Well, there's a, I think also, um, there's a part you talk about on the podcast, Jacob, where you say, you know, that they basically that in 1932, they recognize in the uh, annual letter, I guess, um, that they are a few years into a depression that, you know, it, it's, it's not, I mean, I think part of it, the interest for Buff is probably that this is like a historical document, right? He's talked about liking to read newspapers from the time, not just reading some textbook about it later. Of course we can say, well, it'll be however many years more, but like you had there, the production numbers, um, uh, I mean the, the sales numbers, Andrew, uh, mm -hmm. You know, with the stock market, this is a big part of it is that I've talked about from uh, from 29 to 32 and everything. A lot of people, Ben Graham, some others had some of their worst part a couple years after the crash. It wasn't when the crash happened. They then bought things thinking it was cheap, thinking that this was a, a great opportunity. And a lot of people bought using debt as they many people did in the stock market throughout the 20s. Um, they did thinking that they had really good values. And things went down even further. I mean, you could see, imagine you're a value investor, you know, to bring it back to that, because it's an investing podcast. You know, if you see a, you have a decline of 30, 40% in, in one year period, and then you have a decline from there, probably two years in, you're thinking this is not a, a bad time to buy. Uh, you're not thinking it's going to go back to the levels that the industry, which is a very fast growing industry, would be of more than a decade before, you know? When you're down 50%, you don't think that you're going to go down another more than 50%, right, from that mm -hmm. level, but you would. Um, and some people did it, you know, on margin or, or, or did it, or, you know, invest in companies that wouldn't make it through. Um, so I think living through the period, it's helpful that way. And also, if you see there, you talk, you gave the retail value too. It's helpful for people to look at that, the, the price levels, in 32 versus in 21 how bad that is on a per unit basis too to keep that in mind um because you both have really weak quantities sold and you have really poor price right mm -hmm. and i you could just imagine how in 30 31 
32, you know, imagine early in 32, value investors are probably thinking this is a great time to buy these kinds of things. And you wouldn't immediately pay off for you. Um, so I think being like right in the middle of a contemporary document is one of the things that he likes a lot that way. What, what stood out to you about that it, historically about the, the 32 um, uh, report? Uh, for me, yeah, it's um, how they were able to recognize the recognize and tell shareholders the tough position they were in, one, and, and two, what they're going to do about it, yet still not say that the future was rosy, but say like what they were doing about investing into the future in terms of R&D and, and focusing on surviving now, but making sure their position was improved maybe in the years to come. But I think what you said about the historical document is spot on, and it and also what you said reminds me of Geico, you know, their first one bad year when I was reading that report kind of piqued my interest of the stock was down 75% or whatever it was in, you know, one bad year. And yet sometimes someone like me thinks, gets excited and you, you think you see value. And then in this case, the Great Depression, if you, uh, one bad year, you still got nine to go or whatever. You have a, you have a long time before recovering, which is a very good thing to keep in mind if you, if anyone's going to use margin or use debt or whatever, when you're thinking about your own personal financial position, it could take a long time uh, for some of these periods to recover. Um, and so it is, it is interesting. And, and like I said in the podcast, I was always curious how much the Great Depression was after the fact you look at it and call it that, or during it, during the period, how much, how much you feel that. So in this case, it's interesting to see them talk about being three years into the Depression um, and how serious they take it and stuff like that. I'd be curious how many other companies took that position. Were there any other just sort of big takeaways from studying these annual reports that you'll, um, you know, take with you as you look at other companies or, I mean, I have a few that I could go over, but Jacob, maybe we could start with you and uh, just any general big takeaways. Yeah. Number one, I, I tried to highlight everything I could think of, of the difficulties of the car business. I'm curious if you guys have any more to add. Maybe another thing was thinking about execution in business. Um, but the difficulties, obviously, there's high demand, which is great, but high supply in terms of new entrants. Um, the successful founders, um, you know, they might not have sold that many cars, but today, Buick, Oldsmobile, uh, GM, they still are around and, and sell a lot of cars. But David Buick lost control very quick. I think his name was Ransom, Ransom Eli Olds for Oldsmobile. He lost control almost immediately. Billy Durant lost control twice of GM. When you look at certain media businesses or, or something like, you know, your next five generations of your family is going to be rich if you hold on to, um, you know, the dominant, um, the Wall Street Journal or the Boston newspaper that's popular there, the Wa or, uh, Washington Post or whatever. Um, just what surprised me was seeing the successful founders very quickly lost control for these companies uh, besides Henry Ford. Um, product innovation means the CapEx you spend might be um, worthless or obsolete. The inventory you build up might be obsolete pretty quick, which is risky. Um, the high capital needs is why those founders lost control. They all got their positions diluted pretty quick. Um, product innovation means that you don't really have a moat because Ford, if you're, if you're not executing, you know, if the product or consumer demands change, if you don't execute, uh, that, that innovations could make you lose your top spot. And then the last one, uh, labor intensive, just unions, um, you know, they might negotiate higher and higher percentage of your profits over the years. Um, those are the things I came up with. I don't know if you have any others, but it was just interesting to me thinking about how 
very few founders besides the Ford family uh, lasted with these companies. Yeah. One thing I thought was to sort of add on to your point of like execution, right? Um, GM was very aware that this was a very like rapidly changing industry. They talk a lot about like the customer and stuff like that. It was an early industry that was growing like crazy. And as I had said, I felt like they were sort of studying their customer and, and kind of catering to them. Um, you know, that was on one side and then Ford, they were super slow to pivot, right? Like it took them something like eight years to, uh, you know, adapt and, and, you know, the customers, I mean, that's probably a huge reason why they lost, um, some market share, uh, to GM, especially because they had 60% market share. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Um, but you see that a lot even today. I mean, most companies, what's the word that they use, right? Like finding product market fit, like you're iterating to, you know, what the market is. And I think Ford, um, you know, didn't do that where GM on the other end would kind of perfectly understood what they were doing, that this was a rapidly growing industry that, you know, uh, the customer could be, you know, want certain things and whatnot and that they should cater to them. Uh, so I think they really managed that good. Uh, where Ford, on the other hand, didn't. And that's probably a huge reason why they ran into, you know, market share issues and stuff like that. Um, and also just the takeaway is, you know, just again, when you are looking at these industries and the cycles that these industries go through and how things can change over time, right? Like railroads at one point were horrible businesses and there were a bunch of them. Um, and now railroads are considered to be a pretty good business and a great industry with high barriers to en entry. Um, where, you know, like the Wall Street Journal, for example, used to be probably a pretty good business and now, you know, things have changed. So really just um, understanding that the change that can happen over time. And when you read these old case studies or you, you, you read these old companies, whatever, just being able to basically see that in real time as it went through the years. Um, so that was a big takeaway for me. I was going to ask you, Jeff. So my takeaway to execution is so important in business. Geico slow to raise prices during inflation. GM slow to respond when they built up inventory in 1920. Ford slow to respond to some changes in the market. It just hammered home to me execution. It's like a daily battle in business. Is this a lesson for all businesses? Is this ind industry dependent? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I th I think it's somewhat industry dependent or at least like what phase in the industry like we we're talking about. This was a capital, fast growing capital intensive industry. I think it's really interesting also if we look at it from a company perspective versus from like an investor individual perspective, right? I think Alfred Sloan, who had one of the biggest fortunes from this, ended up with like 1% of the company or something, I think, when he said he's one of the largest shareholders, um, you know, when he's writing his book. Uh, so whereas Ford made money, Ford family made money, um, there's actually not a ton of huge family fortunes that have come out. There's a few around the world, but there's not a ton of huge family fortunes that have come out of cars. Whereas let's think about like, you know, Balmer or something at Microsoft, right? Not even one of the first employees really. And one of the richest people in the world. Um, so there's some businesses where it's a bit easier than others. DuPont, right, was able to buy about a quarter of the company. Um, at, on terms that, you know, probably meant like what capital had already been put into it. Um, and that was at a phase where it's one of the leaders in the industry at that point, you know? Um, so you could wait 
I mean, DuPont kind of got to wait a decade and see how the car industry shook out and whether they'd be one of the leaders and still could get in on terms that weren't different from, you know, if you were putting in money as a founder. So I think that is really interesting from an investment perspective. It, it's hard to imagine in, when we talk about tech things, you know, um, the, the soft tech things, uh, that 10 years after Google really gets started, Microsoft really gets started, you're ever going to be offered the opportunity to get in on the same sort of terms that the founders did. But here in the car industry, that happened time and again because these founders, they got stock in the bigger entity um, and they got to, uh, you know, we didn't talk that much about it, but sometimes it was the founder who was running the division basically for a while and everything sort of like what can happen at Berkshire and everything. So they, they had a long career as an executive, made plenty of money, but they didn't get rich in the same way that founders get rich in a lot of other industries um, from this. You can really see the costs of how much capital was needed early on, um, you know, and, and also you see, I mean, they did eventually incentivize people. But you do also see a big difference in terms of what the attitudes were about voting shares, options, huge grants and things like that to move a lot of the wealth from people who are putting up the capital to people who are running it. Um, the most successful car companies, other than what we're talking about with Ford, right, um, did not get wealthy to the same extent that in some other industries. You know, I've said before, like looking for what's a good industry, what are the industries in which people have made fortunes? Um, you know, is often a good indicator of that because it does give you an idea of like really what the long-term returns are in the industry. Uh, we talked a little bit about return on equity or something, but say in cable where you can't really measure it through their growth phase, it did at least get the people who were involved early on very rich, although they used a lot of debt to do it. Right. Um, so I think it's interesting from an investment perspective to look at it that way. Because sometimes a company is very successful, GM is very successful. But if you look at the phase of how they put the company together, it involved issuing a lot of stock to a lot of different companies to put it together. And um, in some cases, probably people whose companies turned out not to be worth that much ended up with about as much skin in the game as some people who had big contributions. Mm -hmm. Isn't it also fascinating how like Tesla, for example, they have their own charging networks and we're first people doing uh, electric vehicles, at least in modern times. Um, and now all these other auto manufacturers are doing electric vehicles. And not only that, but Tesla, since they've had this first mover advantage, um, now these other manufacturers are going to tap into Tesla's charging stations as well. So when Jacob was talking about Bezos, you know, having eight years ahead and we were talking about, you know, GM being different than Ford because Ford was stuck in their old ways. Um, you know, it's kind of similar to now, like all these other manufacturers are going to have to use Tesla's technology for, you know, their own customers going forward. So I don't know, like there's this balance maybe of like not having too much inertia versus still being able to, uh, you know, innovate and come up with new products and stuff like that. But it just shows how hard all of this really is. Yeah. And I think the car industry has been an interesting story for like a hundred years. Uh, it's fun to watch, fun to study, but it, I still want to be on the sidelines today as an investor. And I think looking back in all these periods, probably want to be on the sideline the whole time, but it's still, still fascinating story for how old I guess by now it is. Jeff, could you ever see yourself investing in a car manufacturer? I mean, maybe at the right price, right? But yeah. uh, I, I don't know about situation. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, b people always say how like auto parts businesses are, are so much uh, are so bad, and that you know they they buy into the auto makers a lot of times. But you know, I was looking through the Japan Company Handbook, for instance, and so you see all the different companies that supply Toyota and stuff. And um, in a lot of these industries, the 
a lot of the ones who supply these companies don't have much worse results, uh, not much better either, but not much different results than they do. It's not like these companies have been able to capture all that much of the value chain. Um, the, the finance thing, the dealer things, and see, they haven't been able to own the dealers, you know, in, in the United States. And um, some of them had finance arms that they don't have anymore. Um, so there might have been more opportunities in that stuff. We didn't talk about it, but what's one thing that's really different at this part of the history of cars compared to later and that's made cars a tough uh, business is that models um, don't last very long as being very successful if you look at the top um, uh, the top most successful selling uh, vehicles for different companies they quickly drop off that list uh, so in this period like the Model T that's a rarity later on in history it'll be extremely rare there's some pickup truck that's sold for decades as one of the top things in the US but like for most of the most popular passenger vehicles, um, they don't stay up there that long. And it's an interesting question as to why that doesn't happen. Is it variety? Like we talked about, you know, once so many are on the road, does it have a certain positioning? Okay, so now the minivan is only associated with soccer moms and stuff, and now I don't want that car. Is it, you know, what is it? But the, they're these cars that sell really well, and 10 years later, they've stopped production. And that's a a big deal because when we talk about movies and things, you know, if you have Marvel things and then 10 years later, they're not going to, they're not going to be in theaters at all. Um, that makes the business a lot worse. And so I remember in the business adventures book, there's a bit there talking about, um, Ford and, and, and some things that way. But one of the things it talks about is going through the list of like how long car, a car was successful, how long it sold for and how short the lifespan of some of these cars that we remember were that were so popular, the most best-selling car in America, and then a few years later, not selling that well. And it just reminded me that because of we talked about electric cars, Tesla is a rarity that way. A little bit Toyota with their Prius, uh, with the hybrid, also sold a lot. That was one car. But um, in focusing on very, very few models, right? Um, but historically, that's been tough to uh, continue for a long time. And that would make the business a lot better, right? If Ford could have whatever... 30, 40 years ago, just sold a Taurus, just sold the Taurus in huge numbers, right? And it continued as a business. It's the Durab. Um, for these. And maybe it is, GM talks a lot about, from this period, about variety, variety, you know, and I just get the sense of a lot of experimentation, trying things out, and you get a feel for customers' tastes and everything. And the, it may be that in cars, there is a real desire for variety not to have the same thing all the time. It seems to be something that changes a lot. Even when we haven't had a lot of technical change, you can look and see the difference between what cars are popular in one decade and the next. Just it's almost like fashion that way, you know, because mm -hmm. there isn't these things are very, you know, aside from what we're talking about electric and stuff, you know, for the last several decades, the major car makers are making cars that are very, very similar to each other. And yet we can look at them and tell what years they're from and everything just in terms of it is fashion like that in terms of clothes mm -hmm. or something. You could say it's very commodity, but there is this cycle there, whether it's a fashion cycle or a economic cycle or whatever. But there is experimentation with customer taste going on there in a way that I don't think you see with um, to the same extent with like food and beverage and a lot of things that Buffett loves. It just doesn't seem to have the same lack of variation over time. And maybe that's why Ferrari, uh, you know, they're the scarcity of Ferrari. They don't make too many of them. And then also not may, many people can afford them. Maybe I guess uh, those two things go hand in hand where maybe that's had a little more durability because of the scarcity of it. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. We've only talked about, you know, 
the major car companies that make huge numbers of cars. There have been some cases of companies, and specifically families, when I was talking about families that made a lot of money, has been in much lower production and focus on really building a brand, um, which is very different. You know, we talk about, you know, comparing a Ferrari to a Ford or a Porsche to a Volkswagen or whatever. The, the, just the scale involved with it is totally different for the car companies we've been talking about. Which model do you like more? The Ferrari model? I think there's the possibility for, let me, how, how do I put this? I think there's the possibility for the manufacturer to be capturing a lot more value that way as a brand with the positioning, kind of like what I was talking about. Um, it's interesting because when people ask me about car dealers, they noticed that I was interested in buying car dealers that are much more mass market and had a variety of different brands. Mm-hmm. And that's true. And the reason was I didn't want to bet on any one brand. You know, if I was buying affiliates of a, um, uh, you know, t- uh, TV networks in the seventies or eighties or whatever, I would want someone who had a bunch of ABC affiliates, CBS, NBC. I don't want to bet on one or the other. I would just want to have that business there that way. Right. And, um, I think that's the kind of advantage for dealer things, dealer groups, they may not be great businesses um, necessarily, but I do think that in the long run they may be more durable actually than the car makers. And it is interesting that for you know it, it may be someone else who bought into you know GM with Berkshire, but we do know that Berkshire bought uh, that Buffett would have been the one that bought into a car dealer, you know, bought the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so it is interesting that there's parts of the industry that they'd be willing to buy into, and I think that's a consolidation thing a um durability thing right about how he thinks about that but he didn't you know he he didn't buy into gm and ford and stuff and their times of trouble the way that he did some uh, financial companies or general electric or some of the other brands that he bailed out and everything um so i i do feel like it's a durability thing rather than like a quality um like that you can never make good returns in this industry because like we said in this early period they're making good returns and gm decades later would be making really high returns on equity but i think buffett's probably worried about the durability of it um like you're saying Mm -hmm. just like the change in the industry so whether it's still gonna be around in the same fashion 10 15 20 30 years from now whether the leaders are going to be the same or there's something that you can't predict that will change things. That's what worries me about it. Um, that's sort of how we started this whole discussion with talking about Ford and like the idea of just a low cost advantage. It does worry me that you don't know what that will be. You see that a lot with some technology things early on when we were talking about Blackberry and stuff, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's it's hard to tell because at the time it might sound like that is a big advantage to have. Like, how do they ever overcome that advantage that Ford that you know Ford had? There's so many more of them. Think about probably what the total cost of ownership would be and everything. But then look at it from the other side and say, okay, think about the element, uh, you know, being exposed to the elements and everything. Think about having to start the car yourself with a, a crank that way. Um, you know, some of the things are huge differences where people might have been very willing to pay up for it, seeing it totally differently. I mean, if it had stayed the way that the Model T originally was, I don't know if it would have appealed to as many people. There's some people who'd really be willing to pay up and the car as it existed later is because of how convenient it was, uh, how much more comfortable and pleasant an experience it was. And the it might be that there was more of a hobbyist thing that they're describing at first with the Model T and that's why people were skeptical of it, right? Just like when we talk about electric cars, early on if they have no range and it takes so long to charge them up and all those things, it sounds like you think, oh, well, this is a niche and, you know, Ford was totally dominating the early stages, right? But I don't know if the Model T was the right car for years later, but it was the right car to get the industry started, you know? 
Well, very good. Well, you should definitely go listen to the 10K podcast. Jacob has three episodes uh, where he goes more in depth on this topic. One of the podcasts was 30 minutes, and then the other two were basically an hour. Uh, so I'm going to put all of that information down below in the description. Jacob, what's the next uh, company that you're going to profile for the yeah, pod? By the time this comes out, I think I'll have National Cash Register out, the 1906 annual report. So in Poor Charlie's Almanac, he talks about uh, John Patterson and National Cash Register. Um, it's a pretty awesome annual report, so um, looking forward to that one. Very good. Very good. We will put all of Jacob's information in the description, so go check out his podcast. But I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the three of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast today. Uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening and watching and be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups. Follow me on Twitter at, at focuscompound. Um, and of course, follow Jacob on Twitter while you're at it. And uh, we will see you next week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care.